Good morning. Today's passage comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So last week, we learned from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, we learned that the Christians should put off the world-like self. Do you remember that phrase, to put off your old self and put on the new self? We talked about putting on the God-like self, the Christ-like self. So the obvious question should be, and, and you heard Chris ask a very similar question to the kids earlier, the obvious question should be, if I'm supposed to put on the Christ-like self, what does the Christ-like self look like? Functionally, what does the Christ-like self look like in our lives, look like as we live a lifestyle of grace as a local church? So Paul is about to tell us in chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, by saying, therefore, having put away all falsehood, right? So having put off your old self, now he's going to tell us what it looks like if you have put on the new self, the Christ-like self. And honestly, to just summarize everything he's about to say, I can give you two words. He's basically telling them, be kind. That's what the Christ-like self looks like. Be kind. I don't mean be a pushover. I don't, be, I don't mean be easily manipulated. Be kind. That's what the Christ-like self looks like. That's where Paul starts with the practical question of what does a Christian practically look like? You know, secular people, people uh, functionally without God in their lives, uh, secular people have actually no convincing motivation for morality. Have you ever thought about that? Secular people actually have no lasting motivation for morality or for just social causes. They don't have a foundation for it, a convincing and lasting one. Well, um, apart from the sheer impersonal desperate instinct to preserve our species, there is no lasting, meaningful, satisfying reason to be kind apart from God, apart from a God who exists, a good God, a just God, a loving God. The church does have a compelling and lasting motivation for morality and for justice 
Now, ironically, it does, it cannot, it at times has failed miserably to show it. Well, um, I guess the high profile type of offenders within the church, they get the most attention, right? But quiet, consistent, Christ-like people the world over have shown kindness. And, and I think we have to each ask ourselves, if you're a Christ follower, which type am I? Am I the bad example that gets all the attention in the news and in the movies and in the history books? Or I, am I the consistent, quiet, kind, Christ-like person? Now, if you're not a Christian, I, my, hope, my hope today is to offer you some clarity on the Bible's purpose for morality. Okay, what is the point of morality from a Christian perspective, from the Bible's perspective? Because, you know, a lot of religion, a lot of religious morality, for, for that matter, secular morality also, it all boils down to self-serving. It, it boils down to serving yourself. A lot of religion in the world really comes down to serving yourself, trying to do good to get into heaven. It's serving ourselves. Just like a lot of secular morality, trying to preserve our species so that our great, 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 great grandkids will have a planet and oxygen to breathe in and, and you know, water to drink, it's still ultimately self-serving. But the Christian... Christian morality, morality from the Bible actually has a source and a purpose and an outcome. It's a God who is kind. God's kindness to us must be practiced among us. That is what Paul is going to show us now in the next several verses. God's kindness to you must be practiced in your life. Do you know that morality is actually kind despite its reputation? We're going to talk about how morality is the kindness of God to humanity. And we're going to talk about the purpose of morality, what it accomplishes, and we're going to talk about the outcome of biblical morality. So that's the idea, the kindness of morality, the purpose of morality, and its outcome, at least as it was designed by God. Okay, so you may have heard of the moral law. Let me, dis let me talk about morality in terms of a moral law given by God. Now, despite its reputation for being very restrictive and constrictive on people, the moral law is abundantly kind. Paul commanded the early church, not just in this letter of the Ephesians, he commanded the early church to practice the moral law. Here are some obvious examples of the moral law right here in, his, in these verses. He tells them to speak the truth with your neighbor. He tells them be angry and do not sin. Anger's okay as long as it's kept in check. He tells them let the thief no longer steal. He tells, them, he tells them all that no corrupting talk, he means like, like rotten talk, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And he finally tells them not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, so what you actually think sounds restrictive to you is actually liberating to other people. A law that you find personally restrictive if you follow it, is actually liberating to the people around you. 
So telling the truth is kindness to other people, isn't it? Holding your anger in check and not letting your anger go out from you uncontrolled is actually kind to other people. Not stealing my wallet is kindness to me. Not stealing my wife is kindness to me. Not talking trash about you is kindness to you. You see how that works? Morality restricts freedom? No, no. Morality restricts selfishness for the sake of other people's freedom. Now, where does all of the moral imperatives that Paul mentions in this passage, where do they all come from? The Torah, the law of Moses, the Old Testament, 600 plus commands for this and that all boil down to 10. Speak the truth with his neighbor. Let's take a look at that one. Well, what does that sound like to you? It sounds like the ninth commandment, right? In Exodus chapter 20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. How about be angry and do not sin? Well, you shall not murder was the sixth commandment. And you may be wondering, how does anger and murder, how how do they have anything to do with each other? Well, we read the Sermon on the Mount earlier, right? Well, if you keep reading in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus actually reveals that unresolved anger is the sin beneath the sin of murder, right? So if you murder another person, it's because your anger has gone unchecked and obviously to, to the ultimate extreme. Okay, let's keep going. He says, let, no, let, let the thief no longer steal. Well, that's a slam dunk. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Let's keep going. Let no corrupting talk, he said. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That's more tricky because a filthy mouth or a mouth that tears people apart and discourages people and breaks relationships, a corrupting mouth, it, it can be linked to at least three of the commandments. For instance, it can be linked to the third commandment, which is to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, but also the fifth commandment, which says you are supposed to honor your parents. And even, obviously, the sixth commandment, which is you shall not murder. And then finally he says, don't grieve the Spirit of God, which, of course, the first commandment the one on which all of them flow, uh, on which all of them hang, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, every imperative, when you read the Old Testament, you look through the scriptures and you think about your life, every imperative or every prohibition, every do and every don't finds its source in the 10. It all, anything you read in the Bible, go, why did God say we can't do that? Or why did he say we should do this? It all comes back to the 10. Actually, C.S. Lewis believed that when you look at human history and when you look from culture to culture, society to society, language to language, uh, time period to time period, there seems to be a, a universal moral law, a general understanding, inerrant understanding in all societies from all periods of history of what is right and what is wrong. Where does that come from? Lewis believed it was evidence, that universal moral law was evidence of a creator who was good. 
The moral law resists chaos. It is God's kindness to us. Morality is his kindness to us. As theologian Michael Horton once described the Ten Commandments as the law of perfect freedom. Restrictive, it depends on what you mean by restrictive and what makes you feel confined by a good creator. The kindness of God to us in the moral law, Paul says, should be copied in our lifestyle with one another. God's kindness to us must be practiced among us. And so the purpose of morality, according to the Bible, is that we all glorify God by loving one another. You know, sometimes, you know, children, they grow up and they're like, well, why can't I do this, mom? And why can't, just, right, to, to the immature mind, all the do's and don'ts feels restrictive and frustrating and unloving until we begin to grow up and we become parents ourselves. Or if you're not a parent, maybe you're a boss or you're a camp counselor or you're in some position of authority and now all of a sudden the rules make sense to you in life. Well, what's interesting is the purpose of the rules, right? As kids, well, well, why? Why can't I have another cookie? Well, why can't I drive that fast? Or why can't I watch that show? Well, now Paul lays out the reason for morality, the purpose for it. Look at verse 25. He gives us a ground, a reason for all of his be kind commandments. He says, for we are members one of another. That's his reason. That's why he's giving them all of these, hey, do this and don't do that, for we are members one of another. Okay, that gives you the why. That answers the why. So why, in my anger, when I see injustice, when I see senseless killings in, in, in schools, when I see things in society, racism, injustice, starvation, corruption in government, just... You know, a referee makes a horrible call and somebody loses a game. When I am angered by that, why should I keep my anger in check? Why should I not allow my anger to drive my decisions and my words? This is why, because Paul says, don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give the devil an opportunity to use your anger to breed division among you. Because when you lose control, you break trust, right? Okay, let's keep going. Why no longer steal? Because instead of stealing, the all, I should be spending my time working instead of stealing. And the reason I should work with my hands and do honest work is so that I actually have something to share with other people in need. I just don't steal because God said don't steal. I don't steal because it's taking me away from the good work I should be doing so that I am now equipped to be helpful and gracious and merciful to you in your needs. Okay, let's keep going. Why why not have corrupting talk coming out of our mouths? So that we can focus on the type of speech, Paul says, that is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So Becky and I, when the kids were little, we would say things like, now those words that just came out of your mouth, did they build your brother up or tear him down? 
And I have to keep asking myself those very, that very same question with the words that come out of my mouth. And again, what's the point of it all? Verse 25, for we are members one of another. Morality builds unity from God's perspective. That's what it's intended for. We cannot glorify him while we are dishonoring one another. Have you ever thought about like, I cannot possibly obey God and dishonor my brothers and sisters at the same time. First John's all about that. It's very short, you could read it. Verse 31, Paul goes on, more general now, but he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, sounds like social media. <laughs> bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, along with all malice, he says, put it all away. Essentially, he's saying, be nice. Be nice, guys, in sparkling contrast to the world's chaotic relationships. So the takeaway is this, treat the church as God has treated you, with kindness that builds unity. And I'm saying treat the church that way so as to not let any of you, including myself, reason your way out of not loving those types of Christians you don't want to love. Treat the church as God has treated you with kindness. The whole household of God, not just your favorites. The whole household, every sibling. You're not going to be best friends with everybody. You're not even going to like everybody. But we have to be kind to the whole church if you're a follower of Christ. Do not grieve the Spirit of God, Paul said. Why should we not grieve the Spirit of God? Because nothing grieves dad more than his kids fighting. Isn't it ironic how, how so much religion creates conflict and division? Isn't it ironic how so many just causes create division? Our self-guided morality actually tears down unity. When we define what morality is, when we define what justice is, it tears down unity in the church. It's ironic, but, but from a religious perspective and from a secular perspective, people miss the point of morality and they miss the point of social justice. They miss the point of conservation and preservation of the planet. The point of true religion, according to the Bible, is a love of neighbor that copies the love of God. That's what true religion is actually about. For instance, James said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It is hypocritical to say you love God but do not love others. The point of justice born out of true religion is a love for your neighbor that honors a just God. As he said through the prophet Micah, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness 
wait for it, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, it's also hypocritical to say that you love humanity, but you do not love its maker. God grieves over this imbalance and hypocrisy. He grieves it. He hates religion that creates hate one to another. He hates any form of justice that tries to bless fellow humanity while ignoring him who gave us our sense of justice. God grieves the types of morality and justice that demonize people and dehumanize people who disagree with your platform, who disagree with your perspective. You can't be just and dehumanize other people. You can't, you can't be religious and hate your brother or hate your sister. That's what grieves our Heavenly Father. And those divisions will always be there as the result of myself, me determining what is moral, me determining what is just, we determining, our camp, our tribe, determining what is moral, what is just, that will always result in division in the church. Someone more moral than all of us has got to unite us, and someone more just than all of us has to unite us, or there, there's no possibility for it to happen. The outcome of morality, okay, so we've talked about how actually morality from, like, the kind of morality that God gave us is abundantly kind in a chaotic, sinful world, but we've talked about it having a purpose. Its purpose is to love one another. And what's the outcome? What are the fruits of God-given morality lived out in our lives? I think it's fair to say the outcome of godly morality is reconciliation. What did you think I was going to say? The Ten Commandments inscribed on every building in America? Every, you know, all of the laws going the way we want them to go? Like, whoa. The outcome of morality is reconciliation. Paul concluded all of his moral imperatives with this one. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There is no morality without forgiveness. There is no justice without forgiveness. There is no progress. There is no peace without the pursuit of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the crown jewel of all forms of kindness. It's forgiveness. You know, as, as you're going further and further in and all these different types of kindness, wow, look at that kindness and look at that kindness and look at, you know, the museum of types of kindness and you get to the inner sanctum of the museum and you, that one, you know, the thing that the Pink Panther always steals. And you're like, that, that, the quintessence, the essence of kindness, and you get to it. And it's forgiveness. Forgiveness is God-like kindness. That's why it's the crown of all kindness, because it is God-like kindness. Forgiveness is giving the gift of a good relationship with another person 
Forgiveness is the gift of mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it. Forgiveness is gifting somebody who did not earn your good favor. They've probably earned exactly the opposite. Forgiveness is God-like kindness. We've talked about practical theology, which means a lifestyle of grace. If you've been saved by grace, we must live in grace. Well, a practical theology that includes forgiveness, right? A lifestyle that includes forgiveness means I am really trusting in God. Like, I'm not just saying I believe in God. I'm not just saying I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But if my lifestyle of grace includes the active pursuit of forgiveness, I am really trusting this God. Because forgiveness means that I'm trusting him to work it all out. For me to practice forgiveness means I'm going to trust that God's going to make something right. I'm trusting that God is going to deal with that person. I'm trusting that God is going to right that wrong. That God is going to provide ultimate healing someday. If you are forgiving someone, you are trusting that God is going to work it out because God has worked it out with you. Because God has forgiven you. And you believe that if you forgive another person, he'll work it out. You won't. He'll work it out. My discipline, my pursuit to forgive is active faith. I am saying that I am willing to stop playing God in that relationship, in that cause. Forgiveness lets God be God. Jesus put aside his own rightness when he went to the cross. He said, Father, I don't want to do this, but not my will, your will be done. And then he hung on a Roman cross and he said, Father, forgive them. You see, Jesus, even the Son of God, who was perfect, he didn't need to be forgiven. He put his rightness aside to prioritize your forgiveness. So now you put aside whatever rightness you're grasping whatever correctness you are clinging to, you put it aside and you make forgiveness your priority. That is what the Christ-like self practically looks like. God's kindness to us must be practiced among us. He has commanded this beautiful moral law that glorifies him and builds a healthy church. Yes, we stink at obeying the moral law. I stink at obeying the moral law, and so do you. In word, thought, and deed, read the Westminster Confession of Faith, and if a bunch of English guys from the 1600s can't convince you, read the Bible itself. We stink at fulfilling the moral law. And that's why we worship Jesus, because he fulfilled it. He didn't abolish it, he fulfilled it. And he went to the cross, and he killed our sin on the cross. And he killed our hostility, Ephesians chapter two, on the cross. So be kind to one another. The Christian can practice kindness 
in our relationships with each other. So let's treat the church with all of its warts and all of its ugliness and all of its imperfections as God has treated each of us with a kindness that builds unity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for the perfect law that gives freedom. We confess that we don't like it. We confess that it has often kept us from doing what we want to do. But we thank you that it exists. We thank you that we are not victims and slaves to chaos. Uh, Father, we were slaves to your law that was good, but condemned us because we could not keep, us th- uh, keep it. Thank you that we are now We are now chained to Jesus. We are connected to him, to a savior who is good, who is kind, who died in our place. And would you please bless us each with a Christ-like kindness toward one another. And Father, I thank you for those bumper stickers that say be kind. And I thank you for those yard signs that say be kind. I don't know what they mean by it, but I know what you mean by it. And Lord, every time we see those stickers and those signs, help us remember how how Jesus showed us what kindness looks like. And in his name, may we do the same. Amen.